My name's Jess Miles, and this is the Transforming Society podcast. Today, we are privileged to be speaking to Malcolm Evans, Principal of Regents Park College, Oxford. Malcolm was formerly Professor of Public International Law at the University of Bristol and was Chair of the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture for 10 years. In 2015, he was appointed KCMG for Services to the Prevention of Torture and the Promotion of Religious Liberty, having previously been awarded the OBE in 2004. Malcolm's new book, Tackling Torture, Prevention in Practice, could not be written by someone more qualified. Torture is universally prohibited always as a matter of international law, but this is not enough to ensure that no one is tortured. It can feel remote from the realities of the modern world, but as a human rights issue, we need to talk about how we think about torture and why it's not being tackled as effectively as it could be. Welcome, Malcolm. Good morning. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. I spoke about your background briefly just now, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and why you wanted to write this book? Well, yes, thank and thank you for the opportunity to speak on this topic today. I suppose I've lived with this topic as an academic for most of my m- most of my life. As you said at the outset, I started teaching at Bristol University a long time ago, uh, <laughs> back in the Uh, late 1980s. In fact, I was there for the best part of 34, 35 years. And one of the very first things I did was read some articles about the emerging new ideas around tackling torture uh, when I was a very young academic just just starting off in the days, as I say in the book, when academics seem to have the time to be able to sit down and just read interesting yeah, academic articles, the <laughs> um, uh, which is a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a lost world in some ways uh, now, mm. just for the interest of it. And it really did interest me. But what I then found was that there were colleagues working in Bristol who were actually working on exactly the same thing. Um, but from a different angle. I had a very good friend who was Professor of Criminology at Bristol, Professor Rod Morgan, and he was also working on these these issues um, in a much more practical perspective than I was as a much more experienced person who was used to visiting places of of detention. And so we started talking and working a little bit together. He is a a practice criminologist, me as an embryonic public international lawyer. And so we started off on, let us call it a bit of a research journey together. Um, But having started off on that, if you like, research journey, it very quickly led on to my becoming involved with advocacy NGOs working for prevention of torture and the establishment of new international law, new international instruments around that way. And that work directly led to the establishment of the optional protocol for the prevention of torture in about 2022, uh, sorry, uh, 2002 time passes, the instrument was adopted. And so then when a few years later, I had the opportunity of putting myself forward to become a member of the committee, it really was quite remarkable because it meant that I'd sort of studied this instrument, as I say, across my academic life. First of all, as an academic, then as something of of, of an activist, and then to have the opportunity of being able to, well, let's see how it really works in practice. That's quite unusual, isn't it? You kind of end up seeing it from every perspective. Exactly. And so in the light of that, I felt when I finally stepped down from my role on the committee, 
the next important thing was to, I suppose, return to the R, to move from research, advocacy, operationalization to reflection. And this okay. is what this book is really all about, trying to pull together in different guises that all, uh, basically 30 years of different forms of engagement around the optional protocol and how we do better about trying to tackle torture. OK, um, and so you do say in the book that this isn't just an academic study for all these reasons, and you describe it as an honest and personal reflection. So I did mm. want to kind of bring a bit of that to this podcast today. Um, can you talk about any particular experiences or things you've seen that were pivotal or affirmative for you personally during your work on torture and detention? Stories, well, I suppose I'm thinking of the stories in the book that are really powerful. Well, the, the, I, I can answer that on a number of different um, different levels. To just step back for just a moment about, I suppose, part of the motivation for why I tried to write the book in the way that I wrote it. Because as you rightly say, um, I have tried to write it in a style which I suppose for a traditional crusty academic like me, it's a little bit unusual. Um, <laughs> and I will freely say now I really struggled with doing it. It's okay. not the sort of thing that academics normally try to do no. when you sort of step if, if you like, forward from the, you know, from the from the gauze of academic approaches. You know, we, we as academic lawyers always hide behind all our footnotes and our use of third, third you know, should we, should we say third person language? You know, yeah. it is generally thought that here, see these 70 different citations to prove it. And, and that wasn't going to cut it as far as I was concerned. There was partly a good reason for that. Much of the work that I was doing on the committee was confidential. And yes. so, frankly, I could only write in the way that I would want to without revealing sources, without making um, direct references to materials which were and still remain not in the public domain. Yeah. And so it was partly of, of necessity. But it was also that the, that the voice that I wanted to get through um, really needed to be quite a personal voice. And it's not something that people like me normally write in. And you so do it was talk a difficult quite... register to find. You talk quite a lot about how it made you feel and like yes. almost like these visceral experiences. Yes. Yeah. And, and and whilst that may be true in terms of, you know, what we did and what we saw, I think also, you know, and, and perhaps I'm only just thinking about this for the first time as I'm speaking to you, you know, really also about my discipline itself um, as an right. international lawyer. Because, okay. again, you know, we have all these things we think about our discipline, not only the way that we um you know, the, the way that we write about it, but we talk about it, all the assumptions that underpin that. And in a way, much of what I'm doing and having completed the book, I now recognize is sort of puncturing many of the, should we say, the working assumptions upon which the entire, let us say, edifice of international law in some ways is is built. The fictions, um, some might call them the, the assumptions, some might call them the lies, um, yeah. which, which permeate you know, the way that we construct international law, because, you know, I'm an international lawyer, I know why it is the way it is, it needs to be that way if it's going to work. But it would be difficult to deconstruct this, how can I say, in a purely academic fashion, and speaking from experience and letting that element of it come through from a more experiential perspective, I think is the only way that it can be done. I think the book tries to do it in terms of my responses to torture. Um, but I think, it also says something about increasingly my views about my own discipline as well, that mm. we need to rethink some of the ways in which, if we're being honest, um, 
we, we, we actually think as international lawyers too. Um, and in a sense, that, yeah, that is one of the hallmarks of the book. It's a question of let's be honest about what we know, shall we? Yeah. Um, one thing I think that really came through in the book for me is that disconnect between law and reality. And one of the points you make in the book is that you can have all these laws and you can have all these like protocols and things, but actually every situation is different with very particular needs. Mm. And so you you have to have that human experiential element to it as well i don't know enough about it to know how that would ever work in practice well, well but... no I, I think that that's right and, and and you asked me to think of a you know um a few moments ago about some if you like some pivotal moments yeah and yeah in a sense some of the pivotal moments that brought me to where i am some of them well well a, a number of them spring to mind some of them from a long time before i actually joined the committee and started working you know, with it. And, and these, again, perhaps go more deeply to you know, the way I respond to, you know, to, to international law, international human rights protection. And in particular, um, and I do want to try to emphasize this, the, you know, the need, I think, to take the idea of prevention of abuse as human rights lawyers a lot more seriously. Many people think, well, that's a stupid comment, isn't it? Because the entire point is to prevent. Well, actually, it may intend it that way, but it's not the way it often works in practice. Um, you know, a, a couple of things. I remember it was about 20 years ago now. Um, it was just after the when the so-called war on terror was was mm. underway. And all of a sudden, in a country such as this, in your introduction, you mentioned the absolute prohibition on torture. Yep. Probably nothing is more absolutely pro prohibited in international law than torture is. Yeah. You know, there's endless prohibitions. And yet... 20 years ago, war on terror, and what do we find? Suddenly, all sorts of people are spending huge amounts of time trying to find justifications for torturing people. And I, 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 it's still, I vividly remember being asked to go on a, a radio discussion show um, one, one, one evening around this time, one of these sort of quasi-philosophical reflections, et cetera, et cetera. And there were other very well-meaning people all trying to discuss at great length what quite could make torture acceptable. Um, and I think, well, you know, how is it that when we are faced with something, and this word has got out there, that, well, we may need to torture suspects in order to save lives, for example, mm. ticking bomb situations. Well, how do we do it in ways that work? And, and one of them that... I don't know why it just stayed with me. They were talking about, oh, well, well, if you were to insert sterilized needles under people's fingernails, yeah. Thought, yeah. what difference does it make whether they're sterilized? Yeah. Oh, that makes it okay then, does it? Um, and similarly, when people say, oh, well, get judicial authorization for torture, and then we can make sure that it's being done properly and properly bounded. Well, I'm sorry, how do any of these things equate with an absolute prohibition. Um, and it, it's just reflective to me of the way that when the pressure is on, we just so often resort to yeah, fig leaves to try to justify what happens. And these were at the time our fig leaves. And yet mm. we are very critical of other people who come up with what we consider spurious excuses. And what it shows to me is that, you know, when you feel things are on the line, you've always got to be vigilant for you know the lengths that people will 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 go to. And that we are all, you know, susceptible to do what we ought not to do, you know, which is one of the reasons why you need constant focus on what you need to do to squeeze out the possibility of torture, because simply saying it's prohibited is clearly not enough to stop it from 
from happening. But then it also, I think, leads in also to, you know, how we actually do respond to matters to do with um, human rights situations. Again, some years ago, I was at a, don't think I mentioned this in the book, but I was uh, at, at, at an event and it had the title of, you know, what are we going to do about the human rights situation? It was actually in Libya at the time, again, right. quite a long time ago, with um, at the time when Colonel Gaddafi was um, still in power, but falling from power and there were all these well-meaning people in the room and they were talking about establishing possibility of courts getting the lawyers in um, taking witness statements training people on how to gain witness statements to be able to bring about prosecutions and it suddenly dawned on me and I said and everyone looked at me as if I was mad what's any of this got to do with quote the human rights situation in Libya yeah and the answer was nothing which isn't to say you don't need accountability, you really must hold perpetrators, of course, but in terms of addressing the situation of the persons at risk, this wasn't doing any of it. And again, it just struck me that, you know, this was becoming just a little bit of a diversion. It's really interesting. And that, I think that kind of leads on to my next question in a way. There's something strange in how we think about torture and ill treatment, isn't there? It's kind of quite an abstract thing that we are very keen to justify sometimes in Ooh. in that just wouldn't happen with any other kind of violence. Um, and I think your book challenges our assumptions about torture. Mm. So I, I wondered if you could say a little bit about this kind of thing, about the kind of traps we fall into when we're talking about torture and how we think about torture. Oh, oh. yes. Well, what is torture? Um, you know, in, in a sense, I think we are still, shall we say, many of us are still victims of our old medieval imagery, shall we say. And in some ways, that's not that, that that's not entirely wrong. It's certainly reflected, as I explain in the book, in, in much of the language and the assumed approaches, even of contemporary law on the subject. Um, you know, we still have got this idea that torture is really all about the application of extreme pain for particular purposes such as garnering information, getting you know, confessions, finding out what's going wrong. And it normally takes place you know, in a pretty controlled atmosphere by a torturer with a victim. You know, the sort of things that we see in you know, endless TV dramas, etc., read in books, and, and so on and so forth. And it tends to be done by you know, terrible people um, on, should we say, innocent victims or other people who are pretty terrible, but the people doing it are more terrible again, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this at times is entirely true. It does happen that way. And terrible things are people to done for political reasons, to political prisoners, for political purposes, you know, to intimidate and terrorize populations, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Yet, in my view, is that the bulk of torture that takes place in the world today? No. Right. The bulk of torture that takes place in the world today is, to use expressions that other people have used, banal. It happens in the routine operation of, of law enforcement, criminal justice systems around the world, affecting you know not just the handful of high-profile political prisoners or the people, frankly, that we will campaign about, and rightly so, yeah. but 
thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who we will never know about, will never hear about, we will never know their names. I doubt whether the people who are torturing them will ever know their names. It, it is just, you know, should we say at that less prominent level, pretty, you can't even say it's industrial torture. It is just the way that people behave within, these, within, within, within systems in too many places for too much of the time. So it's not what we think it is. Another thing that has, has troubled me for some years is also the way that torture is so generally presented, um, not only in the media, but in films, on television, in, and, and, and so on and so forth. Yes, we know that there can be, despite the absolute prohibitions, this almost glorification of torture in many you know, films, um, television serializations, etc., etc. We wouldn't do this about other things which are absolutely pro prohibited. Would we do this in, you know, in context of rape or of child sexual abuse or, or, or other such matters? No, we wouldn't. And yet, somehow, when you think of, you know, many, you know, famous dramas, you've always got that figure of the torturer who, or the, or the investigator who who beats somebody up to get the information and saves X, Y, and Z. But also at the same time, if you look at the people who are ill-treated in these things, we all love a good James Bond movie and we know it's not meant to be real and all the rest of it. But, you know, when the central character is taken away by the evil people and terribly ill-treated, in the next scene, maybe a week later, they're still leaping around from building to building. There's yeah. not a mark on them. And they all look absolutely fine. Yeah. And that's not true. People who have been tortured are not fine a week later. No. And all this, again, this false presentation of what the reality of torture is in terms of what it is and the effect that it has on people, again, I think, can contribute to this background feeling that we have that, oh, well, you know, it, it's maybe it's one of the ways that we deal with things to yeah. think it's not as serious or, or as important as it is. But it does bother me that of all the things that we that we we outlaw, we still seem to get endless presentations of torture taking place in, in ways that are quite benign. It's presented as like a necessary evil, isn't it? That has a certain nobility about it because we're trying well, to get to the truth. thought that talks about, well, John Rawls from a legal perspective, you know, dirty hands theory that you right. can only do things if you're prepared to get your hands dirty at times yeah, um wow. and you, you know th this idea and we certainly saw it in a lot of the writing as i was saying earlier after the um after the 9-11 attacks on the war on terror where you know you're saying oh well you know even if the torturer is then punished for their crimes they just have to take that on board because it's the price they have to pay to save society and you know it was almost it was quasi messianic talk yeah, that the torturer almost of the of the savior of humanity. You know, the torturer would and then take upon themselves the punishment of society, rightly so, because what was done was wrong, because that somehow exculpates us. This is just dangerous nonsense. It really, really is, isn't it? And um, yeah, yeah, and it's almost also presented as something that happens in one moment. And like you yeah. say, like the long, long, long lasting repercussions of it for everyone. I'm sure just. That's not factored in at all. One of the things that I was really taken with with the book was the fact that a lot of what the work the UN does is visiting places of detention, yeah. isn't it? And so a lot of what you talk about in the book is actually like descriptions of how people are treated in places of detention 
and the problems with that. So I'm guessing that's what you mean um, when you say most torture isn't the dramatic kind of things yes. we see in films. It's this kind of ill treatment of people and inhuman treatment. Well, absolutely. And some may say, oh, yes, but is that torture? Well, the answer to that is, well, from a legal point of view, inhuman and degrading treatment is as absolutely prohibited as is torture itself. And so, you know, to try to say, oh, well, you know, it's it's not torture, it's only treating people in an inhuman or a degrading fashion. Um, yes, as, as, as a lawyer, I do understand that different legal consequences flow from those labels. Um, but in terms of whether they are they are permissible or not, all are absolutely prohibited in exactly the and, and the too much talk around torture has been focused upon trying to differentiate, should we say, what really amounts to torture from things which, and I use the words of others, which are only inhuman. Yeah. Uh, stop and think of it for a moment. Think back to what I was saying. You know, the sterilised needle underneath, is that torture or is it merely an inhuman thing to do to someone? And it's that that allows us to kind of justify torture and it's Absolutely. that hierarchy. Exactly so. Yeah. And, and to me, this is just not the way we should be looking at it. I know that for a legal perspective, we have to do a degree of this. But, you know, the, the, the most famous example of, 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 of this would be, you know, the again, going back in time when the US issued what was called its famous infamous torture memos to say that, well, what was going on was certainly inhuman, but it didn't attain the level of severity necessary to make it into acts of torture. And before one is so becomes too critical of the US for that uh, approach. That is precisely the language that we find in universe, international conventions, right. that it's only things of a, of a particular severity that cross the threshold into torture, which, which encourage us to always think in terms of, well, is it severe enough? And not to ask that more important question, is this appropriate at all? Yeah. And it becomes yeah. one of these great sort of um, ways that actually we we process and allow it to happen. We we make torture. It is described legally as having a special stigma. There is a special taboo. It makes it virtually impossible to talk about torture, or put labels on it, which actually makes it a lot easier for it to happen. Yeah, I found it myself in our own work. If you saw things, if you described something as torture, people say, "No, we won't do that." You know, that's not true. It's not this. It's that. If you say, "Well, that's a terrible thing to be doing," they go, "Yeah, I know," but because of X, Y, and Z. But the minute you put the label on it, it almost becomes undiscussable, and that becomes a problem when you're trying to deal with it. Yeah, it's really interesting how you talk about that in the book. I remember that section. There was one moment in the book that really, really made this very clear for me. And I wondered if you'd um, tell the story. It's the time, I can't remember where they were, but it was the time where you went to visit a place of detention and there were lots and lots of people being held in a tiny, tiny cell. Um, yep. And the whole the whole situation was just awful. Um, mm. And I felt when I was reading that, like that was probably an example of what we're talking about here um, in terms of the general way people are treated and that being... Well, that's, well, yeah. well, absolutely. Um, and, and to try to turn around and say, well, OK, from a strict legal perspective, this not may, may not actually amount to torture because they weren't you know, trying to get information, evidence, etc., whatever. It was completely besides the point. Mm -hmm. Nobody should be held in conditions like that because the effects of it will be you know, terrible for the people. Could you describe it just yeah. for the listeners who haven't sure. read the book yet? Well, you know, I, I think you know, if, if it's the one that I think you're mentioning, referring to within the book, 
and I know there are several of, of, of this nature, one that immediately springs to mind was a situation in which we went into one prison and there was a, a small, a relatively small cell. Um, no, it wasn't, I suppose it wasn't that small. It was probably about four by five meters. Yeah, but it was holding about 20 or 30, yeah. 30 at least 30, 35 people. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was less, well less than a, a meter, a square meter of, of space per person. It was impossible for everybody to sit down um, at the same time. Not a, of course, no chance of everyone being able to lie down to sleep. Not that there was anything to sleep on otherwise, other, other than the concrete floor. And people were being held in this for very long, you know, for, 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 for prolonged periods. And they were in a, a pretty desperate state. There was no sanitation facilities, of course. There was no and, toilet, was there? No, 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 no. no. Yeah. Um, and so I just let you your mind wander over what the yeah. implications of, 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 of that might be. Um, but, you know, there was also, you know, in one situation like this, there was also, you know, but what was particularly striking about this one prison where we saw something like this, there was a cell next to it that was larger than yes. the small cell and it was empty and so we said well at the risk of stating the obvious why don't you take half the people in this one and put them in the cell next door it will still be horribly overcrowded it will still be unacceptable but it will be a heck of a lot better for these people than is currently happening no 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 we that was impossible why was that impossible well because apparently there was only one padlock and so you could only put it on one door um well okay you you suspend disbelief for a moment and say well okay put everyone in the big cell next door you know it'll still be a little bit better mm. and then move the padlock from one to the other no yeah. you couldn't do that why well it was that cell's padlock yeah. yeah, listeners exactly. can't see my face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I know, think, yeah. what do you do? And you think, oh well, does that amount to torture? Well, there's a point where you don't really care, and if you're trying to approach situations from a preventive perspective, it doesn't matter what label you put on something. What you can see are people suffering greatly. An mm. easy solution, or at least an easy partial fix, or a very simple amelioration, which people are absolutely could do very easily, uh, absolutely refusing to do. I don't know that I care what I call it. No, the definitions become irrelevant. Yeah, when, yeah. then there are other things. And if you're talking about prevention, yeah, the label is for other things. Yeah. And why do you think so? You, I, from what I remember from the book, you basically said to these people, buy a padlock, buy a second padlock, and buy a bucket, so it's a little yes. bit more sanitary for these guys. But they didn't do it, did they? Even though those no. would be really easy things to do. So, what? Why? Like people will deny that they're torturing people and find excuses for ill treat or treating people incredibly inhumanely. But why why are they reluctant to do these things that would make things a little bit better? Well, you know, it's an interesting one. And, you know, it's something I have reflect I, I have it sort of you will understand it preys on the mind, doesn't it? Well, I was um, going to ask you about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think, well, is this just rationalising for the sake of, ration, you know, should we say rationalisations for the sake of rationalisations? But, you know, some of the things you see, you think, well, just how pe how do people do this to other mm -hmm. people? 
because you know many of the people doing it are not monsters they're not terrible people you know mm. many of the people we spoke to were running these things you know in their own ways are perfectly normal decent human beings who at the end of their shift are going to go home to their wives and children um you know and want just a pleasant night off with a family um you know just like the rest of us and mm. you think well how is it that you can get this and and i suspect that in a way it's their own way of trying to deal with exactly the same problem that we're talking about that right. the moment you start admitting that the situations that they find themselves responsible for are as bad as other people say they are or see that they are if you like their own house of cards starts falling down and right. as long as you just accept that things are just the way they are because they have to be yeah. then that actually becomes a way of dealing with them. It goes back to what I said at the moment, that my own discipline of international law. We all know that there are some states in the world which are absolutely, you know, pariah states who do terrible things, yet we all treat them as if they're decent states with governments that should be properly respected, give them all the same dignities of statehood, and we don't call them out for what they are because that's what the system demands. Yeah. You know, sovereign equality of states that everyone is to be entitled to be treated with respect on the international plane, no matter how monstrous and crazed, you know, you know, some people will say things in diplomatic fora. It is always thank you very much for your valuable contribution to the debate, which we greatly appreciate when what you're really thinking is, well, I won't tell you on a podcast what we know everyone is really thinking. That's yeah. the way it works. And it may have to work that way. But I suspect for those people in those positions, you know, even running those things, which is unacceptable, which is quite wrong. And in so many, and of course, when it's direct physical ill treatment should be called out. But they too, you know, will have limitations on what they can do. They may not be able to really be able to fundamentally change what's going on around them. And so perhaps just ignoring it all and not even doing the little things that could be done to make it better. I don't know. Perhaps it's their way of dealing with it. It's almost if you do a tiny thing, if you then you open, exactly. open something up, isn't it? So it, having it, having it raises the question of what else could be done, and you don't even want to go there. Yeah, yeah. How have you been able to kind of process all the things you've seen and live with them, like especially when change is so difficult, hmm. or when it seems so unlikely that we'll start thinking about this in radically different ways? Well, I suppose the easy answer is I wrote a book. <laughs> was that part of the process? Yes, it was. Yeah. When, when I finished, I didn't, when I start, when I, when I stepped, I'd been on the committee, as you said at the outset, for 10 years. I'd been working in the background for a great deal longer. You know, quite frequently people, when you're doing the job, said, oh, how do you handle the things that you see? And, and, and then you give the normal answers, almost like I was just giving, well, it's, you, you would like to think it's a degree of, you know, I'm an amateur, but it's a degree of professionalism. It's what you do. Um, it, it's, you know, you, you're not doing your job properly. If you, should we say, over-emote about things or let it get to you, you're in there for a purpose. You understand what you can do and what you can't do. And you owe it to those that you're doing it for to try mm -hmm. to do it as well as you can. And if you allow all this stuff to get to you, well, you're not going to do that, are you? Um, self-indulgent you know yeah. well that's the lie we give to ourselves of course it affects you um, and it's only when you sort of step back and finish that that then becomes slightly more apparent um, right. and yeah so for me writing this book it was not only because I think 
felt that I had things to say, I really did feel that I sort of needed to say them. Yes. Um, and that became, if, if you like, partly for me, that the very thing that you describe, you know, at least I've put them out there now. And that yeah. may be about as yeah. good as it's going to get. Yeah. Well, my final question is, what would you like to see happen? Um, mm. Who do you want to read your book? Where? I mean, there's um, what we haven't had time to talk about too much here is like the overview of like all the structures in the UN and sure. the protocol and the committee and how they work but I don't know what where 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 would you like the conversations on torture to go next well in a way I'm you know I'd be very happy to spend a huge amount of time talking about the detail of the conventions and how it operates, but I would much rather talk about the things we've been talking about, the bigger picture things rather than the nuts and bolts mechanisms. Yeah. And going back to what would happen now, of course, I would like the the nuts and bolts mechanisms of how the, the optional protocol works, you know, to be better funded, better resourced, to be able to do more. I will yeah. say it's probably about one of the most powerful potential mandates for human rights protection that the international the UN community has ever put together it right. did, did give our committee the right to go to any of our now 90 states parties around the world any time we wanted to do it to go into any place of detention we wanted to go without giving any notice at all we would literally turn up uh, with no notice in front of a prison or walk into a police station and say we're looking around yeah now and, and speaking in confidence, in private to anyone, seeing any piece of any documentation, it was an incredibly powerful yeah. tool that we had there. And the why, oh why, it's not empowered to be able or, or supported to be able to do what it can do far more widely is just beyond me. Just yeah. beyond me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so so one thing is we've got this incredibly powerful, potent tool. Why, oh, why, oh, why is it only able to conduct seven or eight visits a year on a good year? Sometimes because of funding. Because of funding, because yeah. of lack of secretariat resource, because of lack of just, just lack of vision or imagination about what it could be done. And oh, yeah. yet vast sums of money are spent on other things which are far less useful in terms of bringing about change. So, of course, there's all the stuff about trying to make far better use of this incredibly powerful tool, which we have our disposal, but is simply not being used anything like as much as it can or should be. Yeah. But beyond that, I think the other thing I would like, you know, to... Um, you know, to, to emphasise is, is some of the broader lessons of all this for the how way we go about protecting human rights more generally. Okay. Most of the rest of the UN human rights system, and I don't by this mean any criticism, I think they do a brilliant job, but they're set up to work in different ways. It's much more focused on committee room meetings in Geneva, meeting with states. It's all very important. What they're not able to do as much as they should is to go out into the field and see things for yourselves. Right. And the one thing that when we had gone into places of detention that never happened is that afterwards, when we went to see the national authorities in the countries and said, this is what we saw, this is what we're, you know, this is what we're telling you we think, never can I remember an instance in which we were told that's not true. Really? Because really? they know they couldn't say it was not true because they knew we had been seen there. It. Yeah. 
And yet, if you listen to the debates in Geneva or in elsewhere, in courtrooms, in other committee rooms, in intergovernment, it's all, it's a denial that's not true. You've got in your information from these people who've got things, with, you know, against us, et cetera, et cetera. When you've been there, seen it, smelt it, they're not going to turn around and say you're lying because they know you're not. And that immediately puts you in a different place in terms of the conversations you can have, the recommendations that you can make yeah. and what yeah. progress you can to try to bring things about. But it also means because you're so close to it, you lose patience with, dare I call it, the political correctness of the things that you're meant to say. Right. rather right. than the things that you think would make a difference. And you think, well, I don't care if that should or shouldn't be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, not in terms of, you know, just being gratuitous in your criticism, but you say, well, that may not be a human rights standard, but it would be a jolly good idea to do it. And that is what prevention to me is all about, seeing a situation and using that preventive mandate in order to try to bring about positive change. And likewise, it may often mean that the positive change, you know, what you're suggesting isn't what some people think you should be saying. And in the book, there are plenty of examples of that. And some people have often criticised when they've seen some of the things, well, why weren't you saying this ought to apply to everything? Why were you not uh, arguing for X, Y and Z? You were only going for, you know, you know, small measures. What about the big ones? Because the small was all that could be done. And if you'd ask people to do other things, the chances of it happening were somewhere between naught and zero. Yeah. And that might flatter yeah. your vanity. I told them to do it, but it wouldn't actually help anybody anywhere except perhaps make you feel a little bit better. And that's not what human rights work should 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 be about. And so really it's about also thinking again about what effective protection of human rights looks like, trying to put a much greater emphasis on what we can do to protect people from violations. After all, in my area, you know, the, the right is not to be subject to torture, inhuman or degrading treatment. Yeah. It's not a right to have your torture remedied by subsequent processes or to have those who torture you held to account. That, of course, is also a right. But the primary right is not to be tortured or not to be ill-treated. Yeah. And yeah. so let's have a little bit more focus on what the real, the central substance of, of, of rights here and try to make a, a difference, you know, for, for, the, for the people who are most vulnerable here and understand also, you know, what the real drivers of much of torture and ill-treatment are. And perhaps I know time's coming to a close, but we haven't touched on this, but I think it's important. We often feel that, you know, the thing that drives torture are, as we said earlier, wicked people doing bad things, liberate. Yes, a lot of it is, but much of it is not. It is routine. It is a reflection of a whole host of things. There is corruption in so many situations, and that is a huge driver of torture. We tend to think that rule of law operates well when in many countries it doesn't. We think if only we can get the professionals in, you know, the lawyers will sort it out. The doctors will act as good medics. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Many of the things that we think are the solutions to the problem are not solutions at all because we're not being honest about what the real drivers of the problem are or actually what the effectiveness of our so-called solutions are, which is one of the reasons why in the book I've called the first half of it, which is describing the international systems and structures, the solution. 
and the second half of the book, which is looking at what really happens as the problem. In other words, we tend to devise the solution without actually understanding the problem. That's fascinating. We do have to bring it to an end now, unfortunately, but it's clear there are no clear solutions. But I think taking a few steps back and thinking about it in different ways um, is the only, is the thing to do, isn't it? Um, thank you so much, Malcolm, for your time today. Thank you for speaking to me. In my pleasure. Thanks very much. You can find out more about Malcolm's book, Tackling Torture, Prevention in Practice, on the Bristol University Press website, uh, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.